Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What time is it? Well, I gave up wearing a watch decades ago. It seems superfluous. There are clocks everywhere in my world. Most of the working day, there's a clock where at the lower right-hand corner of your computer screen. And you know something? It agrees to the second with the one on my phone. 10.53 Pacific Standard Time. Eight hours behind coordinated universal time. Why did we change that? It used to be Greenwich Mean Time, right? Now it's coordinated universal time. Anyway, since we moved to Tillamook, though, I've learned to track another clock, the daily tidal swings. And there's an app for that, too. We just passed ebb tide on Neetarts Bay and began a gentle flood, just over a three-foot rise that'll culminate about 3.30 this afternoon. What time is it? Well, philosophically, we entered an era referred to as postmodernism during the latter half of the last century. This time period's view can be described as a reaction against scientific attempts to explain reality with objective certainty, recognizing that reality is constructed as the mind tries to understand its own personal circumstances. We see and experience this outlook every day as my truth my reality, the world according to me. For Christians, this should sound suspect. God's truths are changeless and timeless. The writer to the Hebrews assures us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led by way by diverse and strange teachings. Close quote. For us, the answer to the question, what time is it, centers around our changeless Savior. It's the time between Jesus' first and his second comings. Paul nudges us awake this morning when he writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up! Wake up from this selfish, self-centered world in which we find ourselves and listen to God's word. Luther invites us to, quote, notice the comparison between natural and spiritual sleep. He who is asleep neither sees nor feels any of the things or goods that are in the world around him. In like manner, he who lives in ungodliness sleeps, and as it were, dead to God. Meanwhile, however, the man is very active in temporal and transitory matters, luxuries and honors, close quote. Sleep is figurative for anything resembling delay in responding to God's call, any carelessness in handling the gifts that he offers, any indifference to the dangers of sin. Paul, in our text from Romans chapter 13, itemizes these dangers from sin in three pairs. We might catalog them as three different appetites, which are common to all of us. Physical appetites manifest in feasting and drunkenness, sexual appetites manifest in sexual immorality and sensuality. Psychological appetites manifest in quarreling and jealousy. All of these Paul calls works of darkness. And it's, it's not too hard to spark these works of darkness in our world. I mean, a, a few minutes scanning the tabloids in the checkout aisle or half an hour in the evening news, the criminal convictions column in the headlight heralds, and you can mo learn more than you really wanted to know. But it's not just out there. Sin's works of darkness are also manifest among us. 
Maybe not the big headline-grabbing sins of the celebrity world, but the more subtle, the more easily overlooked and swept under the table sins of everyday living in this time and place. Physical appetites. Our ESV translates this as orgies and drunkenness, but really that first word originally referred to a festival procession in honor of Dionysus. Think our Mardi Gras, which then a joyous meal and a celebration. The New Testament uses it only in a negative sense for excessive feasting, a salutary rebuke after this week's National Day of Turkey with extra stuffings. Thank you very much. But what does Paul say earlier in chapter 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And sexual appetites. Our society, our media, has so commonized and commercialized this gift of God that we struggle to teach our children the Sixth Commandment without making allowances for the cohabitating aunt or the uncle with his male roommate. Yet for us, the standard is even higher. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In psychological appetites, the ego-driven reality that is postmodernism, all too often, we're like the brother Zebedee, right? Carving out a special place for ourselves in the kingdom of God. But what was Jesus' response to their request for a place of privilege? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Physical appetites, sexual appetites, psychological appetites, these are all ways that Satan works to undermine us, to lull us to sleep with a false sense of urgency. Bruce Thielman relates a rather interesting story. It is said that Satan called to him the emissaries of hell and said he wanted to send one of them to earth to aid men and women in the ruination of their souls. He asked, which one of you would like to go? And one creature came forward and said, I will go. And Satan said, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell the children of men that there is no heaven. Satan said, they will not believe you. For there's a bit of heaven in every human heart. In the end, everyone knows that good and right must have the victory. You may not go. Then another creature came forward, darker and fouler than the first. And Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell them there is no hell. <laughs> Satan looked at him and said, they won't believe you. For in every human heart there's a thing called conscience, an inner voice that testifies to the truth that not only will good triumph, but evil must be defeated. You cannot go. Then one last creature came forward, one from the darkest place of all. And Satan said to him, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men to aid them in the destruction of their souls? He said, I will tell them there's no hurry. Satan said, go. To which Paul responds, wake up. Wake up. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Peter also warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And finally, our Lord himself tells us in Luke chapter 9, 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what time is it? Well, a time for plowing, using Jesus' metaphor. But this in turn raises a question regarding the nature of time. For natural man and nature religions, time is cyclical. It keeps going around and around. Planting and harvesting are manifestations of the observable rhythm of the world. The ancient fertility cults of Artemis of Ephesus and the temple prostitutes of Baal both sought to enable this cyclical renewing of nature. This belief, the belief in reincarnation exhibits another view of cyclical time projected onto immortal souls. But that's not a biblical understanding of time. In God's word, time is linear, not cyclical. Resurrection, not reincarnation. Time is goal-oriented and purpose-driven. Time is the stage in which God works out his will for his creation. Recall Joseph's comforting words to his brothers after their father died in Egypt. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God will use not only his own, but unbelievers, even his enemies. Cyrus, the Persian king that restored the exiles to Jerusalem, God's prophet names him over a hundred years before he was even born. He is my shepherd, God says, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid, Isaiah chapter 44. Pharaoh as well served God's purpose, even as he oppressed Israel, Exodus 9. But for this purpose I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But God's ultimate purpose is the salvation of sinners. Ever since the garden, ever since the fall, this has been God's telos, his end goal or objective. We hear it in the curse placed on the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God would save sinners, you and me. He would save us from our appetite-driven sins by sending his son. What time is it in God's plans? What time is it in God's purpose? It's the time between the coming of his son and his return to power. Today marks the beginning of the Advent season. A season of joyous preparation for the celebration of Jesus' first coming. The world will certainly go overboard with its trappings of tinsel, its fevered commercialism commingled with honest acts of charity and goodwill. Within the family of God, there will be good cheer and cards and presents. The danger in all of this joy is Satan rocking us to sleep, as the earlier story suggested. Lest we forget... N.T. Wright observes, quote, Christmas is not about the living God coming to tell us everything's all right. John's gospel isn't about Jesus speaking the truth and everyone saying, of course, why didn't we realize it before? It's about God's shining his bright, clear torch into the darkness of our world, our lives, our hearts, our imagination, and the darkness not comprehending it. It's about God. God is a little child speaking words of truth and nobody knowing what he's talking about. 
close quote. Jesus came, not just a cuddly baby in a manger. Jesus came to be despised, to be rejected, to be crucified, to die. Not for his sin, for my sin, for your sin. He died and was buried. And while Satan gloated and thought he had a victory, salvation history was being made. On the third day he rose. Wake up. Your victory has been won. You are redeemed. Everything has been completed. Now is the time for proclamation, the time of the gospel. What time is it? Advent also anticipates Jesus' second coming. This coming in triumph on the clouds with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. He will come as king of all creation. He will come as the judge promised through his prophet Isaiah. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. For you and I and all believers, it will be a joyous realization of our faith, of God's goal for each and every one of us in baptism. But for thousands of millions, it will be a day of terror. Our text warns, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Do we have hours, days, centuries? Doesn't matter. During his 1960 presidential campaign, JFK often closed his speech with the story of Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. One day in 1789, the skies of Hartford darkened ominously, and some of the representatives, glancing out the windows, feared that the end was at hand. Quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it's not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I call for candles to be brought. Candles to be brought for our Advent wreath. Candles that mark the approach of the Savior. What time is it? It's the time between his comings. He came first to make satisfaction for sin. You are forgiven. His resurrection prepared the day for the final day of salvation when he comes again. The night is far spent. How many hours are left in the day before the whole world is flooded with light really doesn't matter. The day of exaltation is at hand, a time to praise his name forever. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.